This podcast is brought to you by the ATMS, the Australian Traditional Medicine Society. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today from New Zealand is Lara Bryden, who's a Sydney naturopath with more than 20 years experience. She first trained as a naturopathic doctor in Canada and then moved back to Sydney in 2001. Lara is a passionate communicator about women's health and alternatives to hormonal birth control. Her book, The Period Repair Manual, published by Pan Macmillan, and now in its second edition, is a manifesto of natural treatment for better hormones and better periods, and provides practical solutions using nutrition, supplements, and natural hormones. The book has been an underground sensation and has worked quietly to change the lives of tens of thousands of women. And Lara will also be speaking at the ATMS Symposium in Sydney on the 16th of September 2018. We'll be speaking about the drivers of PCOS, and that's what we're here today to discuss. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Lara. How are you? Hi. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for having me. Now, I was enamoured by the first time you joined us in on FX Medicine, and indeed when I heard you speak at the 2017 ATMS Symposium. That was just an awesome, awesome educational experience. But today we're going to be talking about something that there's a lot of um, circulatory sort of things happening here with PCOS. So I think we first have to get a definition. What is PCOS and what isn't it? That's a very good place to start <laughs> because the condition is, I'll, I'll venture to say, rather loosely defined. You know, unlike some other women's health problems, such as endometriosis, which is a very specific disease, PCOS is best defined as kind of a, a group of symptoms. Mm. And it's, an, it's an, in that way, it's an umbrella diagnosis because I think women can come to that place for a lot of different reasons physiologically. But most fundamentally, the group of symptoms are irregular periods, so irregular ovulation. And then the second key symptom is excess male hormones. Um, and so they're different, as I have discovered in my work and through the research there, is there are different drivers or processes that can bring a woman to that place of having those two main symptoms. And like my historical background of this, when it was, I think people started to first define it and they tried to overdefine it. There was this apple-shaped obesity. There was the hirsutism. There was a cardiovascular paradigm in there as well. But that's not always present as now as I now understand it. Is that correct or not? That's correct because it's really I'll say it is kind of an assortment of a few different conditions. I think that qualify for the diagnosis of PCOS, which is why I, I really think we need a new name for the condition that's in the works mm. potentially to define it based on androgen. Excess, and I, I would propose we perhaps even need a few different names, depending on to what degree there are insulin resistance or the, some of the cardiovascular parts of the picture. That's, in my view, that's kind of a distinct condition. And uh, like I also remember the PCOD, 
polycystic ovarian disease. Uh, you know, so the, there was this attempt to define it as a disease rather than a syndrome, as you say, a collection of symptoms. And, and the other part of it is there's also polycystic ovaries. Which is not a thing. Which is not a I'll thing. Say for what, well, I'll say for what it's worth, that ultrasound finding of polycystic ovaries on its own without any other evidence of problem is not a, a condition. It doesn't define anything. And it's actually really, I'm glad this came up near the beginning of our conversation because there has been a trend to overdiagnose PCOS based on that ultrasound mm. finding. So mm. you might have women who just came off the pill, for example, or have lost their periods because they're under eating or there could be lots of different scenarios. And many of those women will show up with polycystic ovaries on ultrasound, but they don't have the androgens and the, the insulin resistance and some of the other things going on. So their doctor you know, says to them they have PCOS and then they're looking essentially in all the wrong places for the solution of what they need to do. That's a lot of what I do in my clinic is yeah. working through that confusion and trying to guide women to a more accurate assessment. Okay. So what do you do to arrive at that? Do you look at levels of androgens? Do you look at perhaps some cardiovascular markers or indeed um, doing a fasting insulin? Do you look at that sort of thing? I do do a fasting insulin, but I'll give you my little flow chart. So step one is the, you know, the big question of do you have, do you qualify for PCOS diagnosis, which would mean is there some evidence of anovulation or ovulatory dysfunction? And is there some evidence of excess male hormones? So that evidence for the male hormones could be male hormones on blood tests, not saliva tests. I'll say at this point, it's, it, you cannot pick them up as saliva tester. If you do see elevated male hormones on saliva tests, it's not accurate, right. I will venture to say, yeah, yeah. Um, or may not be accurate. Um, and and then but blood test is what I use. So I'll test testosterone, DHEAS, androphenodione, some of the androgens, and also at the same time, look for elevated prolactin and um, rule out some other condition. You can use the blood test to rule out other conditions that can cause elevated androgens. So that's step one. Oh, sorry, the blood test for evidence and the second evidence for androgens would be clear physical symptoms like facial hair, body hair, hair loss, a particular pattern of hair loss, perhaps acne, although acne is on its own not a, mm. not a defining symptom of antigen excess. And if that's all present, and then I can say, yes, you know, you, you definitely do seem to be qualifying for a PCOS diagnosis, at least at this stage. Then the next step in the flowchart is, and you, you said it just a couple of minutes ago, is do you have insulin resistance? That's the very next question to answer. One of the other big surprises for me as well was, you know, how I immediately pigeonholed women into this, you know, particularly the body shape, the apple-shaped obesity, that sort of thing. And yet I've met quite a few women now who have PCOS and are the fittest, some in some cases slimmest, trimmest women, you know, that, that I know. And yet they have this issue that they constantly, you know, battle against. So Absolutely. how do we yeah. break that picture? You know, like how do you, when somebody's presenting with you, what's the key thing that you go, hang on, <laughs> there's something happening well, here? Well, again, it's, you know, if they qualify for that first step of the irregular ovulation and the high androgens, then we know there's something going on. So then the next step is to determine if they have insulin resistance. That usually means testing either fasting insulin or a glucose tolerance test with insulin 
it's not enough to just test a blood glucose or even, I would argue, even just a normal glucose tolerance test. No. And then the, and determine if, they, if insulin resistance is present. So and just as you said, it, it, it may be present. They, uh, even a, a lean woman, a not overweight woman, can have insulin resistance. Mm, mm. So that's why that testing is so important. You can't just assume it's like, oh, you're skinny, therefore this is not what's happening. So that step is very important. But then there are, because of the nature of the way this condition is loosely diagnosed or defined, you know, there are then going to be some women who are qualifying for PCOS but don't have that main underlying driver of insulin resistance. So then it becomes a bit more of a, you know, put on the detective hat and try to identify what has, for that particular woman, what has kind of pushed her into the state of high androgens, recognizing that for anyone who moves into a state of high androgens, there's going to be some genetic underlying genetic tendency to do right. so. Gotcha. Um, it, it's sort of a mismatch with the environment. You know, they for whatever reason, you know, a combination of genes that they have under certain pressures, whether it be you know, insulin resistance or other pressures coming off the pill, might be an example. They then move into this hormonal state, and it's reversible. This is the other thing that's important to understand. I mean. We hear that you know there's no cure for PCOS. I would say that's true in that women who have this tendency, probably a genetic tendency, are always going to battle against it to some degree. Yeah. But the consensus amongst the experts that I've spoken to and myself included in this camp, you know, I think for many women, the symptoms are reversible. Therefore, you know, by definition, once you don't have active symptoms, you really you move out from under that diagnosis yeah you might move in and out of it like you might have it and then it's like oh no you're clear and then you move back in but the other thing that happens with PCOS is you can tend to outgrow it so there was a recently ah. a paper Australian paper called I'm trying to get the exact name it came out in the British Medical Journal just a few months ago saying our they called it our expanding diagnostic criteria causing of a diagnosis amongst you know, for, amongst women for PCOS is basically the title. And they make a few points. One that I said earlier that ultrasound on its own is not um, adequate for diagnosis. And they also make the point that um, many women, this is something more that more is more of a problem when they're young. So most teenagers are in kind of a mild state of PCOS anyway. That's kind of normal for them. And then, you know, as you move into your 20s, 30s, a lot of that will for many women, will tend to improve on its own. So that's something important. In that paper, they're saying that's important to communicate that to women so that they don't get too scared. <laughs> but it's quite frightening to have be told that there's something wrong with your ovaries. But in reality, for many of them, it's possibly just you know a stage that they're in. And indeed, I guess once anybody, any woman in this case, gets a diagnosis, it can be either or both an answer, a relief to know what's going on, but also once you know that there's something, let's use that word wrong, that they can then go through even like a grieving period, uh, you know, a shock period to adjust to. Absolutely. Well, they can, I mean, I guess what I, how I would describe it is they can kind of freak out, <laughs> you know, be very scared and yeah. start, you know, taking a lot of treatments and including diet, you know, that they might not need. And 
even just the anxiety around that can mm. worsen the condition. So I'm trying to reframe the condition a little bit. You know, I know it can be very serious for some women, but for many women who have been given that label of PCOS, it's relatively probably quite a mild situation and doesn't mean they're not going to be able to have babies or anything like that long term. You know, the interesting thing is when I was nursing, this didn't exist. <laughs> it just didn't, never came up. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was, it was basically as soon as I finished nursing and then this term started to be bandied around and became more and more and more common. So is it a case that we're picking it up and answering questions that we overlooked before, or is it really becoming more common? It's both. It's being overdiagnosed, at least in Australia. I'm convinced of that. Um, I, and that's explained in the, the medical journal, med, uh, sorry, British Medical Journal paper that I mentioned. Um, but the, at the same time, it's, I think there is a growing trend to the problem. And I think one of the main reasons that's becoming more common in the last few decades is because of insulin resistance. So as we know, metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance is becoming more common. There are a couple of few reasons for that, probably, but that's one of the downstream effects of that for women is PCOS. Okay, so in the meantime, I just found that reference. It's Tessa Kopp. The reference is are expanding disease definitions unnecessarily labeling women with polycystic ovarian syndrome? It's BMJ 2017 for everybody. We'll put that up on the FX Medicine website for you to review. That's brilliant, Lara. I just wanted to go on. You mentioned genetics before, and I have to ask the question, is part of this that, you know, obesity, calories, conserving uh, gene that we, that we unfortunately have favoured um, through the ice age in human development, human evolution? And now, of course, we've got overabundance of calories, so it's now our, our downfall. Is that one of the issues? And what other triggers do you see with PCOS? So with regard to metabolic syndrome type of PCOS, yes, that's pretty close to the situation. I think that um, some of us in the population, you know, have ancestors who were well adapted to famine. You could see that as a superpower, really. You know, they were able to keep making babies, yeah. keep reproducing, even in the face of low food supply, which was, you know, great for them. Yeah. But now there's a, there's a mismatch with our modern world, not just in terms of excess food supply generally, but in terms of sugar specifically. I think when high a diet high in fructose hits that genome, kind of combines with that thrifty metabolism, mm. as they call it, you know, there's the results can be insulin resistance. And that we know from the research that that's actually compounding each generation that's exposed to this diet, which is I think one of the reasons that we're just seeing such an, you know, rapid growth in the, the incidence of insulin resistance, which is quite worrying and not just for, you know, PCOS, but for all the other downstream effects of that. And what about other drivers like, you know, for instance, the, the big baddie of all conditions is inflammation or runaway inflammation, self-propagating inflammation rather than resolving inflammation. What's the issue here? And is it driven by hormones or are hormones driven by it? Again, I, with, with PCOS specifically, I put it through the lens of what, for this individual patient, what is the thing that is interfering with her ovulation, mm. her regular ovulation? And what is the thing that is skewing her to high antigens instead of 
progesterone, for example. And for about 70% of women who qualify for the PCOS diagnosis, the thing that's pushing them there is insulin resistance. Then there's about 30% of women for whom there's no evidence of insulin resistance. There seems to be something else going on. And amongst that group, yeah, there is a smaller group of women for whom I think the chronic inflammation is perhaps one of the biggest driving factors. I actually refer to that in my book and in my work as inflammatory PCOS. Mm. It, it's not to say that there's no inflammation involved in the other types because, of course, there's inflama- There's kind of a metabolic inflammation that comes from insulin resistance yeah, it's itself. Problem, yeah. So that's part of the dysfunction. That's part of the picture. But I guess when I say inflammatory PCOS, I'm talking about the smaller subgroup of women who maybe have more of the kind of immune inflammation, the uh-huh. you know related to food sensitivities and gut you know microbiome problems and that kind of chronic inflammation, and that does seem to be a, a trigger or a driver for some women. But it's again, I'll say it's kind of the it's not the majority. Um, it, I don't see in general. I don't see PCOS as an inflammatory condition the way I would say. Endometriosis, in, right. in in contrast, um, but so, but yes, you're right. I, you know, I think there's it certainly plays a role for some women. And so, I'll just I'll just um, talk through the other two types of what I see as the what I call what I call the types of PCOS. So there's the insulin resistant type, which is by far the majority, and then um, the inflammatory type I work with, and then there's a post pill PCOS as well, which we can talk about if, if you like and then yeah. finally the fourth one the fourth one is um quite a small group of women but I, that's called or i call that adrenal pcos so these are women for whom there's actually quite a different situation going on they've got their androgens or male hormones are primarily from their adrenal glands and their ovaries do not seem to be affected as much so that's a different picture and they that women in that group need different strategies than the classic PCOS. We often term this adrenal fatigue and things like that, which I think is probably a misnomer because it's the brain that changes in volume. But there's a crosstalk. It's the hormones that talk between these two organs and glands, if you like. Are we talking about a stress-induced adrenal secretion of these hormones or is there some other mechanism there? No, it's it's pretty much, well, it's stress-induced. Certainly stress can worsen it once it's once it's established, once there's that pattern of excess male hormone from the adrenal glands, then one of the strategies is to reduce stress to manage that as well as, you know, using some of the natural medicines that help to regulate that brain adrenal HPA axis communication. But what's interesting about the adrenal PCOS is the little bit of research I found that has correlated it with stress during puberty. So ah. particular, like whether a parent died or there's something yeah. like a big hit of stress around that kind of 13, 14 year old age, which when I read that, I thought that really makes sense. That matches with some of what I'm seeing with my patients. And it just kind of makes sense to me as a, you know, as a biologist and as a clinician that when the reproductive hormonal system is calibrating itself and maturing and mm. becoming established, it's learning essentially its environment to have a big disruption like that at such an early age seems to have, well, you know, kind of, I hate to say permanent, but kind of long-term effect. Yeah. And there can also, to be fair with the adrenal type of PCOS, there can be, there's, there's clearly a role of environmental toxins as well, right. like oh. hormone disrupting chemicals yep. as well. There's going to be a genetic component 
to that as there is with any condition really. So yeah, it's a, it's worth mentioning because even though it's only a small group of women, I'm sure there are some of your listeners who have patients who fit into that category right. and might now be able to think, yeah, okay, that gives me a, a different direction to take. That's a really interesting point you make, and I'm I'm just like I'm, my mind's going down rabbit hole here. I'm wondering about EBV. You know, you've got hormonal priming. Yep. Uh, you've got um, the perfect storm of stress hormones and infection as a priming sort of, let's say, an imprinting agent. And that's only a small section of PCOS. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that would just be, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> um, oh, that's yeah, the other thing. Also, oh, no, go ahead. I think it's really interesting as well. Uh, during periods of, of growth and development, bursts of growth and development, like, you know, infancy and like puberty, um, the microbiota changes, the microbiome changes um, to sort of favour the proteobacteria and then comes back into sort of swing for other um, bacteria later on. It's just, it's really interesting what's happening here. And I wonder, who knows, but I wonder if there's any sort of, um, you know, potential, is there a potential place in which we can intervene here to, to rebalance things so that maybe they're not so permanent? I mean, that's a yeah, big question. Yeah, intervene, intervene with the microbiome. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah, potentially. I mean, we know that um, changes with the microbiome can influence the HPA axis. And you're right about the influential windows. So, you know, when we're a fetus or when we're an infant or when we're in puberty, those are all very influential times, like mm. little windows where we're more vulnerable, for example, to endocrine disrupting chemicals. We're, we're more vulnerable potentially to microbiome disrupting agents during those times. So, unfortunately, some of us just you know get unlucky if you get the wrong kind of stress at, during that vulnerable time. So let's talk about these EDCs because this is something that's, just, I mean, they're ubiquitous in our environment. We're now, we're not talking about plastics now. Now we're talking about microplastics. Endocrine disrupting chemicals, it's a broad group. So it includes obviously plastics, pesticides would probably be a, a pretty big one in that group. And heavy metals as well. Ah, actually lead and mercury are endocrine disruptors. Um and, you know, they have the flame retardants in furniture and well, the fire retardants and, um, and, yeah, there's lots of different factors. And that's, I mean, that's almost the whole podcast on, on its own. And yeah. I'm, I'm not fully up to speed on all the different nuances of that or even how much, I'm not even sure how much we even know at this stage because it's it's a, I find it's a, quite a burden for patients to have to think about that and try to avoid things. I mean, I, I give them some common sense advice. You know, to avoid, avoid any unnecessary pesticides, but I, at the same time, I don't want them to become anxious about it because I think, in reality, for most of us, I think especially for something like PCOS, I think some of the damage was done, you know, when they were exposed as a teenager or exposed in utero or whenever it was. So, I mean, all we can do is, for their condition, is use the tools that we have, which are, you know, diet and supplements and herbal medicine, and also as a society, I think work to reduce the burden of toxins that are affecting mm. the next generation. This is obviously a smaller segment of the women that are affected with PCOS, Lara. What about some of the other types? Obviously, you're going to be delving into this at the ATMS symposium later on in this year, but can we discuss maybe, you know, the post-pill type of polycystic ovarian syndrome? Yes, let's do that. So after the insulin-resistant type, which is the most common, I would say the post-pill type is the next most common. It's post-pill PCOS is not an official designation, unfortunately. I mean, that's what I call it. That's what a number of 
my fellow clinicians call it. It's a very real thing that we see in clinic. There's almost no research into it, which is kind of disturbing. But um, So it's a situation where someone was fine before they went on the pill, maybe they were on the pill for 10 or 15 years, and come off and then get a surge in androgens, you know, can't get their ovulations going, probably have some, you know, post-pill acne, show up polycystic ovaries on ultrasound, and panic, basically. And, um, you know, I think one thing I'll, two things I'll share about that for the listeners is, number one, that can be a temporary state. I'm really confident to say that. That right. that is, sometimes it's a longer-term state, but sometimes they just need 12 months or so to recover from the the steroid drugs of the pill, essentially, and to start to ovulate and for their ovaries to get their groove back and stop making so much testosterone. The endocrinologist who helped me with my book, um, Professor Gerilyn Pryor, she described that kind of situation, maybe sort of a post-pill PCOS, as um, temporary, could she call it temporary adaptive and ovulatory androgen excess? So she's kind of saying, you know, this is just a moment in time where for that, the reason of coming off the pill, you know, the ovaries sort of move into this temporary state of of not really doing what they're supposed to. And it's understandable given how strong those drugs are and what, you know, the suppression the ovarian function has been under for the 10 or 15 years on the pill. It's not a surprise that it can take them a while mm. to recover. And what makes me sad is that when women are given that diagnosis, they just, of course, accept it as that they have a disease, they have a long-term condition, they're going to need metformin, they're going to need IVF or whatever it is. It just kind of quickly snowballs out of <laughs> out of control because often they'll have come off the pill to, to, become, to fall pregnant. And then they just they feel like they're on this really you know, short time frame. They don't really want to wait 12 months for their periods to come back and their androgens to come back to normal. So they start more interventions straight away. And that makes me quite sad, obviously. And there's the stress driver. <laughs> yes. And then the stress yeah. is making it worse. Yeah. So I guess my advice would be to come off the pill sooner rather than later. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about in interventions. And obviously this is going to be a huge area, but from what you're saying about the insulin resistant type being the most common, um, yeah. are we really saying, okay, how do we intervene? Diet and lifestyle. Is it just diet yeah. and lifestyle, diet and lifestyle, diet and lifestyle? Diet is huge for the first that first type, that insulin resistant type, which is the majority of women who qualify for the PCOS diagnosis. They need to quit sugar. That's how I see it. You know, I'm in the camp that feels that the high dose fructose is one of the biggest inducers of insulin resistance. So I, I'm quite clear with my messaging around this because I see a lot of women patients kind of struggling, quite confused about a low carb diet and trying to cut potatoes and every other thing and not really and feeling hungry all the time and yet still having, you know, paleo desserts and smoothies and fruit juice. <laughs> so I just want to be clear that for insulin resistance, the most effective dietary intervention I feel, I find, is to remove those dessert type foods. So sweetened yogurt, fruit juice, dates. Do you have to quit sugar totally or can you still have nope, a there's teaspoon? No, there's a sweet spot actually. This is in my book. So ah. there's, fructose is interesting because there's a, a up, and, up to about 25 grams of fructose, which is not grams of total carbohydrate. That's just specifically fructose. Yeah. Up to about 25 per day is actually quite healthy and improves insulin sensitivity. So that would equate to about three pieces of fruit mm -hmm. in the day, for mm -hmm. example. 
anything above that, depending on your genetic situation and your sensitivity, can start to induce insulin resistance. And it's not easy. It's not that hard to have more than 25, as you can imagine. Like if you're having fruit juice and sugar in your coffee and date balls and smoothies and sweetened yogurts, mm. you can be up in the 100, 150 grams of fructose per day, which is obviously quite different than the 25. So yeah, when I speak about fructose, I, I always speak about specifically more about the quantity. Yeah. And my little rule of thumb is it, if it's if it's dessert, <laughs> then it's too much fructose. It's essentially dessert. It's too much fructose. Yeah. But if it's you know, whole food, that's different. What about the message, though, about saying, okay, they're having their three pieces of fruit, so they're quote-unquote healthy, but they're also having three cups of coffee a day with one or, heaven forbid, two, I used to, then they're driving yeah, well, they things way up. Yeah, the sugar and no, the sugar and the coffee has to go. So, yeah. you know, if my patients, so if that's very stressful for them to think about not having that sweetener, then I might look at temporarily using stevia or xylitol or something like that to give them that that sweet sensation and help them come off. What about lifestyle interventions, Lara? Historically, this has been the big brick wall to success of therapy. How do you start it, particularly when they're all, they already might have a weight issue, and how do you keep them on the golden path? So we're talking about exercise, yeah. which is very effective, very important. It um, improves insulin sensitivity. With my own patients, I almost never speak about weight loss anymore. I speak about insulin sensitivity. I speak about the metabolic benefits of exercise for their own sake, not as a way to lose weight. Because I feel like perhaps what I've observed with some of my patients is when they get discouraged is when they're, they're doing everything right and they're not seeing the scale change, for example, yeah. that just seems to be throw them right off. So I'll say, look, I don't know exactly what's going to happen with your weight. You know, I think I'm confident that in the long term, your body's going to find a new set point, it's going to come to the weight that's healthy for it. But in, the sh but in the shorter term, we're just focused on health. And we're specifically focused on getting your insulin down, mm. well, into a normal range, not down too low. But certainly with fasting insulin, I like to see it below eight, between about four and eight, for any clinicians listening out there. And that gives a um, a metric that you can track with patients, which I think they find quite helpful. So you can say, okay, we're going to stop sugar, concentrated sugar. You're going to do some exercise, you know, eat full, solid meals, get sleep. And then we're going to recheck your insulin in a few months. And that's going to give you that positive feedback that you're doing things right. What about different types of exercise? You know, HIIT therapy, I guess with regards to dietary measures, and you've also got things like intermittent fasting, but with lifestyle interventions, with exercise, um, do you ever employ specific types of exercises or techniques? I, I'd like to more because I, I've also seen that research about the value of strength training and it's pretty convincing. So in terms of counseling my own patients, you know, I do mention strength training. I don't you know, I don't have the knowledge to kind of direct them specifically. So, but I, I yeah, I, this isn't, even as we're talking, I'm thinking, I think I need to give them a bit more direction with that. Because strength training doesn't have to be complicated. You know, I started doing just some of my own kind of squats and push-ups. And you know, what's great about strength training is some of it you can just do at home. What about keeping people on that? What about long-term success with therapy? Do you ever find that people, that the best method of keeping people on track is to have these regular visits, that the gaps between visits lengthens, but that regular visitation, just to make sure that they're still cool with what's happening, checking in biochemically as well, I 
I guess, make sure everything's um, on the right track with regards to their hormones and their insulin resistance and things. Do, do you ever find this sort of um, long-term guidance is the best way to go? Yeah, well, the, the great thing about being a woman, I'll say, is that we have this handy barometer of our health, which is our periods. Mm. So with my patients, specifically with PCOS, it's like if you're, you know, if you can stay at the point where your period is coming regularly and your androgen symptoms are improving, then that's your feedback that you know you're doing the right thing. And when you, you know, start having sugar again and stop doing exercise, the periods are going to become irregular again. You're going to start to get some of the other symptoms of PCOS. So it's kind of, it's quite a handy feedback mechanism in that way. But you know, it's, every individual is going to be different. Certainly, I've had certainly I've had patients who are just, I guess, not at the right point in their life to take that in, or maybe I'm just not the right person to be telling them. But you know, not everybody can just quit sugar and run with it. No, it's it's obviously, it's, you know, it's, they they have to have their own individual personal reasons why mm. they want to do that. Yeah. Let's look at other therapies like herbs and nutrients. You know, in the past, there's been these old favorites like gymnema and bitter melon and things like that. Do you find any, I am a full advocate of individualizing therapy, so I'm not saying you should um, be prescriptive about this, but do you ever find there's sort of go-to herbs and nutrients that you usually employ? So there's a few that I mentioned in my book, of course, and I'm going to just kind of state them now because it's... So we're talking now for the, I guess, for the classic type, the insulin-resistant type of PCOS. I'd say the number one is magnesium. It sensitizes the body to insulin. I, I find it works, well, I'll say it. I find, observe that it works as well as metformin with my patients, and it obviously has other benefits too, so it's quite yeah. a nice treatment. Um, next down from that, you know, some, a couple of the nutrients that you need for ovarian signaling are zinc and vitamin D. Those are both quite important, especially if they're deficient. The next nutrient that gets a lot of research is something called inositol, myo-inositol. Yes, right. Which helps with insulin signaling. It's done smashingly well in clinical trials for PCOS. Like it's just, yeah, it's kind of a superstar mm. for PCOS right now. And the next one I'll mention, because there was recently some Australian research about it by naturopath Susan Arendt, um, on the herbal combination peony and licorice. Peony and licorice. So I... That's available in tablet form by a couple of brands in Australia, and I use that quite a lot. It helps to reestablish um, normal ovarian signaling, and Kent also has an anti-androgen effect. Yeah. It's kind of this sort of hero TCM combination, wasn't it? <laughs> it was yeah. almost like two herbs that were just the the stars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. It, 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 it almost became a a term that where two herbs joined for one name. It's painly, yeah, painly exactly. liquid. <laughs> yeah, so I use that quite a lot. And I also say, you know, I get good results, not just me and other clinicians I talk to are getting good results with that kind of protocol. As we've said before, you'll be speaking at the 2018 ATMS Symposium in Sydney. What can delegates expect to learn from you and indeed some of the other speakers? I know that you don't have, aren't up with all of their talks, but what's the general feel of things? What, what can we expect to learn from this symposium? I think the main takeaway will be to look beyond just the label of PCOS. You know, for example, my talk is called Deep Diagnosis, the different drivers of PCOS and how to treat them. So it's kind of similar to what I talked about just now, but in more detail, and I'll be providing more treatment ideas for each type. And it's all part of an evolving 
understanding of PCOS that it's not just the polycystic ovaries and ultrasound, you know, it's a whole body hormonal condition. It's more than one. It's, it's not just the one thing, you know, it has different causes for different women. So it's important to look at the individual patient sitting in front of you and run through some of those questions that I asked, that I mentioned, including number question number one, does she really have PCOS? I've got to say, I really admire the way that you look further than a label. But I think one of the reasons that I most admire you for, Lara, is that you're not just dedicated to your patients, but you're dedicated to your profession and spreading the word um, about better care for these women who are undergoing these issues, you know, especially PCOS, which we discussed today. Thanks so much for joining us yeah. on FX Medicine. Well, thanks for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts, Please don't forget to share us with your colleagues, family and friends.